Well, good morning, church, again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of 2 Timothy. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first five verses. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get, Mike will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Doug even got up. He'll grab some Bibles if you need one. And Doug just wanted to stretch his legs one more time before we sit down. <laughs> We're not selling them, Doug, okay? They're free. <laughs> Second Timothy chapter 4, the first five verses this morning. So you're turning there, it's right after First Timothy. <laughs> I'm going to start getting things thrown at me from the pulpit, I think. <laughs> at the pulpit. All right, starting in verse 1, Paul writing to Timothy says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The title of my study this morning is Staying the Course. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in this place where we know that your presence is here we know, Lord, that your Holy Spirit wants to teach us and instruct us in all righteousness as we dig into your word this morning. We know, Lord, that you want to change our hearts and draw us closer into our relationship with you. And we thank you for that. And we do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that does not have that relationship with you, Lord, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior this morning, this day. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing. We pray that you'd bless our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you heard about the preacher who was on his deathbed and he called to have his doctor and his lawyer come to him. And they came in and they sat on either side of his bed and holding his hands and they sat for a really, really long amount of time until finally the doctor spoke up and said, I don't think you have much time left in this world, Reverend. You better tell us why you've called us here. Well, the old preacher stirred himself up and said with a wheeze, well, the Bible says Jesus died between two thieves, and I've decided that's the way I want to go, too. Now, if you're a doctor or an attorney here this morning, it's just an illustration, okay? <laughs> you know, the last words of people are, 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 are intriguing. And that's what's great about chapter 4 here. It's not only do we have Paul's last words in the book of 2 Timothy, but these are his last words before the Lord is going to take him home to be with him. So as he comes to the conclusion of chapter 4, he's been speaking to Timothy about the last days, how there's going to be perilous times, and he encouraged Timothy to continue in the things that he knows, which he's learned from a very young age. And what was that? That he knows the Word of God. And then he told Timothy that the Word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete 
thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we looked at that last time together. So then now what Paul does as he goes on to do in light of what he has just said in chapter three, that there's going to be perilous times that he needs to stay in God's word. Now Paul lays out for Timothy and us three things if you're taking notes. Number one, the charge. Number two, the condition. And number three, the course. Number one, the charge. Look at verse one. Paul begins by saying, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word charge literally means to testify under oath in a court of law. It speaks of a solemn obligation. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the sense that you're standing in the court of law. This is a formal legal obligation. You're standing before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. I don't know about you, but when I hear about the coming of Jesus Christ, his appearing, I get pretty excited. I don't know when it's going to come. I'm not going to make predictions. Could be right now. Could be right now. I've did this recently, and, and, and you know what? I know no man knows the day or the hour, but man, wouldn't it be cool? Just one time. Right now, poof, and we're gone. I get pretty excited, though, and here's why. The coming of Jesus Christ historically has been the culmination of the Christian hope since the beginning. Jesus is going to come back. It's a fact. He's going to judge the world. He's going to make things right. That's always been our Christian hope. It's inspired great songs throughout the ages, like the Battle Hymn of the Republic by Julia Ward Howe. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It's about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Or the song we sing around Christmas time, Joy to the World by Isaac Watts. You know, that wasn't written about Christmas. We throw it in there conveniently at that time. But it's about the second coming of the Lord. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. How about how great thou art? That too is about the second coming. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy will fill my heart. So there's that excitement, that, that, that hopeful expectation. And what's sad today is that churches, uh, they're not no longer teaching about the Lord's coming. In fact, they, they look down upon, oh, you know, we don't want to talk about, about the second coming of the Lord. We don't want to, want to do that. You know, you know, it's, it's, you know, we want to give people something. In fact, listen to what false teacher Rob Bell has said about preaching the return of Jesus Christ. He says, to preach about the return of Jesus Christ for the church and the following judgment is a horrible and toxic message. A horrible and toxic... The Bible calls it the blessed hope. Not a horrible and toxic message. We've been taught to pray, Thy kingdom come. So we get pretty excited about it. We get excited about it because the Bible points to it an awful lot. 1,845 times is the direct reference to or is alluded to the second coming of Jesus Christ. For every one mention of his first coming, uh, we figure about eight mentions of his second coming. Jesus spoke about his return 21 times. 50 times in the Bible we're told to be ready for it. See, that's the culmination of our hope, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in light of the fact, Paul says to Timothy, that Jesus could return at any moment and judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, what is Paul's charge to Timothy? Look at verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, 
rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Preach the word. Notice Paul doesn't say to Timothy, preach philosophy. In fact, he warned the Colossians to beware of worldly philosophies. Paul doesn't say, preach pop psychology. No, Paul very clearly says, preach the word. See, pastors are called by God to very simply, with authority, very powerfully, with clarity, preach the word of God. That's what God has called me to do. I'm not called to preach politics. I'm not called to be a social activist. I'm not called to be a stand-up comedian, though I try it week after week and fail miserably, but... I'm called to teach the Word of God. That's my calling. That's the calling of a pastor. And if we are biblical Christians, which I don't know any other way to be a Christian, then we need to preach the Word of God. Now, there are those that say, well, you know, see, the Bible isn't relevant in this postmodern world that we live in. We want relevant messages, something that really applies to our life. Now, thankfully, you are a congregation that's been taught the Bible. You know that the Bible is relevant when the word is preached, it's relevant and it does speak to our hearts. But there are those who say, well, we don't want, you know, that old Bible stuff. We want something new that's much more relevant. I don't think anything can be more relevant than the word of God. I don't want man's speculations. I want divine revelation. And when it comes to the problems and the struggles that we all face in life, a good worship song, no matter how good it is, isn't going to give much to you. You know, I, I mean, it may sound good, but how's it going to help me in my marriage? How's it going to teach me to, to, to handle my finances? How's it going to, you know, help me to know God's will for my life? Science can't tell you that. Philosophy can't tell you that. Man's wisdom can't tell you. Even experiences can't tell you that. But God's word certainly can. Because there are all things that you can only understand that only come from studying the word of God. So we need to study the word of God. We need to hear, thus saith the Lord. And my prayer is when you come to church on Sunday that you're coming to hear the Word of God. That you prepared your heart to receive what the Bible teaches and what God says through His Word and you're coming to hear and you're coming to obey. See, that's the pastor's number one job is to preach the Word. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 to the elders who are among you, feed the flock of God. We're told in the book of Acts chapter 20, when Paul met with the elders there in the church of Ephesus, he told them to feed the church of God, feed the flock of God there as well. And that's done through preaching and teaching the word of God. Now, let me, let me add the whole counsel of God. I mean, you can't uh, teach the whole counsel of God unless you teach through the 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation needs to be taught. And sadly, what we're seeing in many churches is they'll do topicals. Week after week, they'll do a, a series on marriage, then a series on giving, then a series on prophecy, then another series on giving, then a series on, on raising kids, and then another series on giving, and then a series on missions, another series on giving. And we laugh, but, but it's true. I know there's churches out there that are doing this. And the problem is, eventually, you're, you're not going to grow because you need to know what else the Bible has to say, the whole counsel of God. So Paul's charge to Timothy is preach the word. Now look at the last part of verse 2. He says, Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Now when it comes to preaching the word, Paul starts off and he says, Be ready. And in a moment's notice, every opportunity you have, you need to take to be ready to preach, to share God's word. 
In other words, there should be a sense of urgency to get the word out. Preaching is to be urgent or instant, always prepared to share. That's what that word be ready is translated out to mean. It means with a great sense of urgency. Now notice when Paul says to have this urgency to preach the word, he lays out three things to keep in mind. The first two are negative and the third one is positive. Three words, convince, rebuke, and exhort. That word convince means to correct misbehavior or false doctrine. The word rebuke means to bring one to repentance. I put those two on the negative side of the column, as opposed to exhort, which means to encourage, help along, instruct with gentleness. So, convince. Number one, that means to bring conviction of sin. Now listen, that should be what happens when the Bible is being taught, if it's being preached. When, when, when the Bible is preached, people will all of a sudden discover, whoa, I'm a sinner. Now, not everyone likes to go to church, you know, where they hear the words preached that they discovered that they're, they're sinners. You know, you don't, you don't get up Sunday morning and go, man, let's go, go on down to church and hear Pastor Tom tell us what a bunch of stinking sinners we are. How fun that's going to be, you know. People don't want that. But when the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed, it's God's Word that convinces us of our sin and convinces us of our sin. It's God's Word that tells us exactly what we need to hear. Then we have the second word. The Word of God is preached here. It's, it's number two. It's rebuke. It's rebuke. That word means to censor or to place blame. Again, God's word clearly draws a line in showing us where, where we've done right and where we've done wrong. So it brings uh, conviction. It draws a line, very clearly lines to what, what is right and what is wrong. Rebuke means that you will teach against sin. To try cry out against worldliness and sin in the lives of God's people. See, it's not enough to, to, to be against sin. Preachers, pastors, all teachers, we, we we're called to cry out against sin. Listen to Isaiah 58, verse 1. The Lord commands... Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. We're told in, in given in, uh, a command given to the church in Corinthians, uh, in Corinth rather, 2 Corinthians 6.17 was, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Now I think if the pastor is failing to, to talk about the dangers of sin, if they're failing to talk about the dangers of, of pornography or the dangers of alcohol or the dangers of adultery, then maybe that teacher is involved in those sins and need to repent and, and come to Christ. Because I think one of the reasons why we really don't have truly any great revivals going on, like we had in the days of Billy Sunday and, and the days of D.L. Moody and the days of Spurgeon and, and the, really the Jesus movement of the 70s, is because we've been given a poor example to the world of what it means to be a Christian. Too many professing Christians live like the world, and those who are of the world see that and say, well, why should I go to church? I mean, my life is no different than yours. Why should I waste an hour or two out of my day? Listen, preaching the words means that we preach that God still demands separation from the world. And sadly, because too often too many preachers do not lead a separated life, then the result of that is is he's not going to warn the people. It's been said that, most of us spend the first six days of the week sowing wild oats. Then we go to church on Sunday and pray for a crop failure. God, help us to clean up our lives, to preach clean living, and not be afraid to call sin, sin, to rebuke, as Paul says here. 
Then the third word, uh, 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 when the word of God is preached, it brings exhortation, which is encouragement and comfort, which we need after we've been convinced of our sin and, and being rebuked for it. <laughs> we need someone to come alongside. Hey, man, it's all right. God's got a plan for your life. Man, we want to help you out here. God, God's want to, want to, we want to encourage you. That word exhort means to come alongside with comfort and strength for someone else. So you can come here, hear the word of God, it cuts you to your heart, you know that you've fallen short, and then be built up and strengthened all by the same word of God. Then look what Paul adds here. I want you to notice, he says, convince, rebuke, exhort, he says, with all long suffering and teaching. So I believe what Paul is saying here is that that good Bible preaching needs to be the whole shebang, the whole package, the whole meal, if you will. It's kind of like a fine meal. You know, you need your vegetables, you need your fruit, but you also need the meat of the word. Now, sometimes it seems that all there is in some churches is the vegetables, you know, the, the exhortation. Of, this is good for you. Eat your vegetables. It's going to help you grow strong. This, you know, do this, do this. This is good for you. And then there's some churches that just offer the fruit. Oh, this is sweet. You know, God loves you so much and God cares for you and, and we need to love each other and, and love our neighbors and, and be excited. And that's not bad. We need both those things. But we need to get to the main course. We need the meat of the word. And I believe the challenge of any pastor is to prepare a well-balanced meal, some vegetables, some fruit, and some meat. Because they're all needed. But I think what so often is neglected the most is the main course. It's the meat of the word. In fact, Paul came down on the church in Corinth because they weren't growing in their faith like they should. He said in 1 Corinthians 3.2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you are not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. Listen, you're going to crave what you get fed. And let me tell you, healthy sheep eat healthy. We eat what's good for us, and what's good for us is the meat of God's Word. And as your pastor, you know, as a pastor, it's my prayer, my hope, my aim, my purpose to make you the most loved and the best fed congregation there is around, anywhere. And, and that's why we, we plow deeply into the text of God's Word. That's why we, we look at the meaning of words and the phrases of the, uh, the structure of the sentences and, and we get into the understanding and, 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 and apply to what it means in our lives. Now, I admit there are going to be some sermons that you like more and some sermons you like less and some sermons that you think, who cares about this? Some sermons that is going to cure your insomnia. You'll, you'll be sound asleep. You go, what's the point in that? But... Put them all together, I'm hoping, will be the Word of God, preaching the Word so that you can be equipped with the absolute truth and be able to rightly handle the meat of the Word of God. The story I read about a pastor's wife that was going into surgery and the, the pastor, her husband, was at her bedside and, and she wasn't sure if she was going to make it or not through the surgery. So she says to her husband, listen, honey, if I die on the operating table, I want you to know something. Two things. Number one, A, I love you. But number two, there's a shoebox under the bed that, I, that I've kept secret from you. And there's some things in it I want you to see that if I die, you're going to look at. Well, she goes into surgery and the, and the guy can't, you know, wait until she dies. So he runs home during the surgery, goes under the bed and finds a shoebox. Well, inside the shoebox was $10,000 and three eggs. And he thought, well, this is really weird. So he goes back to the hospital. She wakes up post-op now. She, she's fine. And he says to her, honey, I love you. I'm glad you're out of surgery. I want you to know, though, that I went home and I saw the shoebox. 
but I just don't understand. What is the, the $10,000 and the three eggs all about? Well, she said, honey, when we first got married, I was determined not to be a complaining, critical, nagging wife. So what I thought is that every time you preach a bad sermon, I'll put one egg in the box and I won't say anything about it. He thought, 31 years of marriage and only three eggs? Man, that's a pretty good track record. He's feeling pretty good about himself until she then finished the sentence. She said, and whenever I got a dozen eggs, I'd sell them and put the money in the box. (laughs) I don't know how many eggs you have in your box at home, how much money you made off of it, but I do want to say, be careful what you hear. Listen with great discernment and filter everything through the absolute grid of the Word of God. Are, are there a lot of texts that are ambiguous? Are there some things we wouldn't understand? Absolutely. But the central message of the Bible is clear and understandable. And the more we go through it, and the more we apply it, the more you'll understand it. Why is this so important? Well, that brings us to point number two, the condition. It's important because of the condition of the world in these last days in which we're living. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So Paul says to Timothy, this is so important that you preach the word, convince, rebuke, and exhort with all suffering, because... There's going to come a time when the majority of the people will not want to endure sound doctrine. Now, I feel sorry for this word doctrine because this is how I hear a lot of people use it. Well, I'm not into doctrine. I'm into Jesus. It sounds, you know, really cool and really humble and really meek and really hip. I'm not into doctrine because doctrine is so technical, so dogmatic, so divisive. I'm just into Jesus. I want to say, shut up. You wouldn't know about Jesus unless you had a doctrine. In fact, Paul uses that word doctrine or teaching over and over and over again. He seemed to like it a lot. Chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for what? For doctrine. The word is, is didaskelia. He said it in chapter 4, verse 2, convince, rebuke, and sort with all long-suffering and the word teaching there, it's didaskalia, doctrine, same word. Doctrine simply means correct, right, healthy teaching. You have the, the doctrine of end times, eschatology. You have the doctrine of the Trinity. You have the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. You have the doctrine of salvation, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. These are things that we as a church need to understand in our lives if we're going to have an impact in the world around us. Because Paul says there's a day coming when they'll not endure sound doctrine. He says, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers and they'll turn away and their ears will turn away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I say those days are here. They've been here for a while. Sadly, years ago, well-known pastor and author Rick Warren made this statement. Package truth in ways that make it uh, palatable and pleasing to everyone, every members, unbelievers, and seekers alike, avoid offensive scriptures and divisive warnings, de-emphasize biblical, biblical absolutes or doctrine, they hinder unity and continual change. Rick's got it wrong. And, and it's opposed to what Paul is saying here. 
See, in verses 3 and 4, Paul is foreseeing a time when the truth will be eclipsed by novelty and cleverness. In other words, they're going to look for someone to tell them not what God has declared with any authority or clarity. They're going to look for people to tell them what they want to hear. And it's going to be according to their own desires. Listen to this passage found in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10. Here Isaiah is a spokesman for the Lord, for the nation of Israel. And this is what Isaiah the prophet said concerning the people of Israel at that time. He says, They tell their seers, stop seeing visions. They tell the prophets, don't tell us what is right. Tell us nice things. Tell us lies. Tell us nice things. You know what? The truth is not always nice, right? The truth doesn't always tickle the ear. Sometimes it boxes my ears before it brings comfort. When Peter preached in the book of Acts, it says that they were cut to the heart. When, when Jesus preached in John chapter 6, it says that people were offended and many turned and followed him no more. That doesn't come by teaching fables. That doesn't come by giving people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Now, I can't read this without thinking about, and I, and I bring this up, and I tell myself I'm not going to bring it up, but if we're in this text, and I'll bring it up again, uh, without thinking about the pastor from the largest congregation in the United States, a church of about 52,000 attendees per week in Texas. And Joel Osteen's message week after week, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny He's laid out for us. Do all you can to have your dreams come true. It's God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty. Man, isn't it those things we, we want to hear? Those things we like to hear? Isaiah says that people says, don't tell us what is right. Tell us nice things. Tell us, tell us lies. Now I do pray for Joel. I pray that he starts calling himself a motivational speaker, not a pastor, because I would not want to be him standing before the Lord and have to give an account for how he taught that huge congregation the Word of God. Paul says, according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That phrase, itching ears, could be translated, they will have an itch for novelty. Isn't that an apt description of the church today? I'm amazed at the crazy things that people who profess to be Christians will buy into. It seems like every few years, some new fad comes along that everyone gets all worked about. I mean, years ago, it's a number of years, it was, you know, demon, demon, who's got this demon? And, and you know, and, and, and the Christians, you know, they, they'd have the, these big deliverance services where Christians were allegedly being delivered by demons that possessed them. It was a, the demon of chocolate cake, you know, how do you, the demon of this and the demon of that. I thought, okay, that's gone, finally that's gone. Then it got moved to the, the, the big laughing revival. You had to go to Toronto for the Toronto Blessing. And people were falling out of their chairs, convulsing in laughter. Well, then it moved to Florida. And the Brownsville blessing of barking like dogs. You know, barking dogs have never, ever, ever been a blessing to me. <laughs> ever. And I remember thinking, what's next? You know, there's certainly no preaching going on, just animal sounds. And people get caught up in this nonsense, in this novelty. And after a while, people are going to get tired of that and they're going to run off to some new thing. It's because they've never learned to love the Word of God. It's kind of like living off of junk food. It's not good for you. Man, you get the rush. You get the buzz from eating a ding-dong, you know what I mean? But, but then you come down. Oh, I better have another one, you know. Let's try something else. And you have no nutritious meal. 
And maybe it'll gather a big crowd for a time, but, but let me tell you, it makes the rest of us Christians look like idiots to the secular world. Listen, we don't want to allow that to happen to us, to have that itch for novelty. Because the Bible says in the last days there's going to be false teachers. There's going to be a false gospel. There will even be false miracles. We need to wise up to that. That means that if there's going to be people waving around their Bible and saying, God told them this and I have this message for you and it's only for discerning. Listen, we need to know the difference. We need to know what they're saying and we need to know how it compares to the Word of God. We need to wise up and be aware of that. Because only Christians who are familiar with the Word of God and are biblically literate will be able to spot the weirdos because they're coming out and indeed they're here. I believe Hosea's cry uh, rings true for many in the church today when he says in Hosea 4, 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So many people today, they're biblically illiterate. They don't have a biblical worldview. Listen, the church is a place where the Bible should be taught, doctrine should be learned, where God's people should know what His Word says. Yes, it should be a place where we worship, a place where we pray, and a place where we use the gifts that God has given to us. And we're getting away from that. And people are turning away from the truth. Now understand, turning away from the truth, this, this not enduring sound doctrine, this turning to fables, this doesn't happen overnight. They don't just go, oh, yeah, I think we'll turn away to this funny thing, you know, do this tomorrow. No, there's a process. Let me give you a good example. When the Pilgrim Fathers landed on this country uh, years ago, they built churches, they built homes, they built schools. And after they built the churches and the homes, they thought, you know, we need to educate our kids. And they built this school. Named after a pastor, a preacher by the name of John Harvard. Guess what the school was? Harvard University. Named after a preacher. The sole purpose of Harvard University is to train up ministers to preach the gospel. Look at Harvard today. Can you even find a preacher of the gospel there at the school? Now, now how Harvard started and where it ended up are miles apart. But it was slow. It was gradual. But look where it is now. And many mainline denominations that were once started by great men of faith committed to the word of God. They've not endured sound doctrine. And they're believing all sorts of things. Now, why? Why would people turn away from healthy sound doctrine? Think about it. It's pretty easy to figure out because sound doctrine rebukes their ungodliness. That's why. Jesus said, men loves darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Neither would they come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. So anybody living contrary to sound doctrine will hate Bible teaching, will hate doctrinal preaching. They're going to resist it. But let me tell you, there's grave consequences to turning away from the truth. Because the more you turn away from the truth, the Word of God, now you're open up to any sort of lie that's out there. And anytime you turn away from the truth, there's always somebody waiting there to sell you a bill of goods, to sell you some lie, some substitute. They go, hey, well, well, what are we going to do about it? We see this all over the place. Should we just give up because no one's enduring sound doctrine anymore? I mean, if people are turning away from the truth, if they're having itching ears, if they won't endure sound doctrine, if they're not going to be, if they're going to be turning to fables, should we give up? Nope, that's not what we need to do. And Paul anticipates that question. And this brings us to our third and final point, the course. We need to stay the course. Look at verse 5. He says, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, don't hold back. Stay the course. Don't 
look around and adapt what you're doing based on the prevailing fashions of the day, but take it from the Bible. Now understand, I think it's important for us to be flexible and, and, and be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit and we, we should be relevant to the time, but the message shouldn't change, though the methods may change. But the message doesn't change. I mean, I don't think any of us want to go back in time where we're, you know, I certainly don't want to wear a robe up here and, and preach, and then you guys don't want to wear, you know, suits, and, and we don't want, you know, we don't want to go back in time. The methods may change, but the message needs to stay the same. The message should never change. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and if you put your faith and trust in Him, repent of your sins, you will be saved. But sometimes churches, they'll seek to be relevant and they'll compromise the message. And that's a dangerous thing. And sadly what happens is, having begun in the Spirit, they start ending up in the flesh. I want you to notice your four final instructions for Timothy in verse 5 that he gives. And, and we'll close with these four things. He says, number one, but you must be watchful in all things. That word uh, watchful literally in the Greek means to be sober. It has the idea of being free from mental and spiritual drunkenness. In other words, the NIV translates it, keep your head in all situations. That's good. Keep your mind straight. Keep, keep your head straight. Stay in tune. Why? Because there's a spiritual war going on. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickednesses in the heavenly places. So we need to stay sharp, stay in tune, you know, stay in God's word and stay on our knees in prayer. Number two, Paul says we need to endure afflictions. Now let me give you this warning. I think you already know this. If you love the truth and you stand up for the truth and you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in this age of tolerance, you will not be tolerated. You know that. They'll tolerate everything else except the Christian message, that won't be tolerated. So be ready for that. That's a warning. And if you pull away from the truth and you start to adapt to the worldly philosophies, then, then you'll be liked. You'll thought of it as being okay, man. But there's a cost to that because it's compromise. Paul said to Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And think about Paul, where he was when he wrote those words. He was in prison. And he's telling Timothy, Hey, it's not going to be any easier for you, okay? I've been preaching the Word. I'm in prison. You keep preaching the Word, and you're going to have to endure afflictions. Man, I believe this is so relevant for us today. The world is getting worse and worse and worse and more perverted all the time. They have no comprehension of right and wrong, and, and we have so perverted right and wrong. And you take a stand for the absolute truth of Scripture, you're not going to be popular with your family or your friends or your people you work with. You'll be thought of as, as narrow-minded and bigoted and, and all kinds of names they'll call you because you took a stand for the truth of the Word of God. I say take a stand anyway. Endure affliction. Be sober. Number three, Timothy, you need to do the work of an evangelist. Now, we know that Timothy was called to be a pastor-teacher and that's different than the ministry of evangelism, but I do believe that a preacher or pastor should always maintain a heart for the lost and, 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 and for the unbeliever, and do the work of an evangelist. And I know there are some pastors out there who say, well, you know, I just teach the Bible to the saints. That, that's a, I, I'm called to do. I'm not an evangelist. Listen, you can't forget about the needs of, of the people. They need to hear about Jesus Christ. People need to hear the gospel. They need to know they can be set free from their sin. 
So Timothy, Paul says, don't forget to evangelize, to seek the lost, to preach the gospel. Now, if the pastor only preaches evangelistic sermons and never really teaches the word of God, then they're never going to grow. And, and that's a problem in some churches. Churches that are, are, are huge, a lot of people are saved, but it's full of, of baby Christians because the word of God isn't being taught. They're never fed and taught. But I think there's the other danger as well is teaching and teaching and teaching and no one evangelizing. No one is preaching the gospel. Greg Laurie has said, evangelize or fossilize. You know, you know, and I agree with that. See, we need to do the work of the evangelist. Make sure you ask the right questions. That's what it means. I, I try for the most part, every sermon God gives me to fulfill that charge, to do the work of the evangelist. I may not have the gift of evangelism, but I know it's important that, that, that I'll ask the right questions. And this morning is no exception. The work of the evangelist is to ask, do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? Do you know that, that all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, that, that God desires that everywhere that men should be saved? That's the offer. That's evangelism. We need to tell people that Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins. And God has salvation. It's a free gift. And you must receive it and invite Christ to come into your life. That's the work of the of evangelist that I must do, that we must all do, really. We're called to that. There's lost souls out there that need to hear the hope that we have. And lastly, Paul closes with this, verse 5. Fulfill your ministry. Or make full proof of your ministry. So the harder the times get, the more you must seek to fulfill your calling. Don't give up. Finish the race. And we're going to look at that next week as we finish up chapter 4. But Paul is saying, listen, know what God has called you to do and do it and don't give up. Give God the glory for it. You be faithful to what God's called you to do and God will be faithful to work in and through your life. See, these words apply to all of us this morning. Preach the word every chance we get. Proclaim the glorious gospel. We have the opportunity this evening, 5, five o'clock for food, 6 o'clock, worship and a message. Bring someone out that doesn't know the Lord. Maybe, oh, I don't have the gift of sharing. Well, you know what? We're going to share the gospel. So I invite them out to come and, and we'll do some worship and, and, and just see what God does. Take every opportunity to fulfill the ministry that God has given all of us to share the good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word and how powerful you use your word to change our lives, Lord, and to conform us into the man and the woman that you've called us to be. Lord, help us all here this morning to fulfill the ministry that you've given to us, Lord. Lord, and that's just reaching people. Lord, it's being in your word, it's studying your word, it's applying the truths into our lives. But Lord, also going out and reaching people for the hope that we have. We do pray for the outreach this evening, Lord God, that you'd be glorified. Lord, you would bless. Lord, you'd keep it uh, uh, just a, a, a great time together, Lord, of fellowship and, and food and, and, and just excitement, Lord, to, to hear your word, Lord. You bring people out that don't know you, we pray. We pray, God, that you'd bless our week, Lord, as we go our way, Lord, that we would just seek, Lord, to stand firm on your word. Give us, Lord, a hunger, even a greater hunger for your word, we pray. Thank you for your love and grace and mercy in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.